in a manner of speaking, a monthly podcast on the spoken word. Episode number 46, November 2021. Highly Irregular. A conversation with Erica Okrant. Hi again, Paul Meyer here. Welcome. First, an apology to you if you'd been hoping to take part in one of my group Zoom masterclasses. I had wanted to offer another round of these before Christmas, but with theatre and film production thankfully on the increase, and my coaching calendar pretty full, I haven't been able to schedule any. Sorry about that. Perhaps in the new year? If you aren't on our mailing list and want to get the latest news, just email me and let me know and I'll make sure you're kept up to date. Paul at paulmeyer.com. And of course, I love hearing from listeners for any reason. Thanks to all of you who've taken the time to write. So, time for our quiz. Guess that accent. Last time I played this clip and challenged you to say where on the planet the speaker grew up. I started working in a radio show and then uh, that was like a chain. And then I was starting in television and and then I spent four years working and living from the show business. How did you do? If you narrowed it down to Cuba, very well done indeed. It was Ideas Cuba 1, recorded by our own associate editor Michael Barnes in 2005. Search for Cuba 1 at dialectsarchive.com to hear the whole recording. Now here's this month's challenge. Where did this speaker spend his formative years? I'm a Christian, and I do go to church. But uh, my prayer is that uh, one day, one time, God uh, will do me good much better than he has been doing. And I know, I believe, I will be somebody also who can assist in the community, who can be approached whenever there is a problem to assist, be it financially or ideally, and uh, that is me. Yeah. Get the answer next time. My guest today is Erica Okrant, author of the very entertaining book, Highly Irregular, Why Tough Through and Doe Don't Rhyme. Tough through and doe all have the O-U-G-H spelling, of course. Published this year by Oxford University Press. I've just finished reading my Kindle edition, enjoying both Erica's text and the very fun illustrations by Sam O'Neill. Welcome, Erica, and first congratulations on the book. I'm guessing it's it's a smash hit. It seems to be okay right now. I, it's hard to tell, but thank you so much. It just came out this year, so it's early days yet, I suppose. I'm hoping that this podcast will boost sales because I enjoyed it so much. It was scholarly, but so entertaining. Uh, I know my listeners will will enjoy picking it up and devouring it at one sitting as I did. Um, let's start with our names, uh, since um, neither of us has a name that can be confidently pronounced, judged by its spelling, nor confidently <laughs> spelled, judged by its pronunciation. So. Ockrant, Ockrant, Meyer, Mayer, Meer, you know, it's <laughs> why are names so tricky like that, do you think? Well, we have a lot of flexibility with names. The same name might be pronounced differently by different families and or depending on the country you're in. It's, the, you know, the, the root is the same, but this is just how we've been saying it for the past 50 years or 100 years yeah. or whatever. Uh -huh. And um, you have to 
yeah, go person by person to figure out what they're doing. And where did where did your spelling of Erica come from? A R I K A. I'd never come across that spelling of Erica before. That is just my parents' idea of how Erica was spelled. Yeah. I think I haven't gotten a very good explanation, but I think I'm the oldest Erica spelled that way. I do get messages sometimes from younger people with that spelling, and they want to know, oh, my name is spelled this way too. What, where does it come from? What is it? And I just yeah. have to say, you know, I don't know. <laughs> my parents just decided. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome, Erica Okrud. So yeah, I love the book. Highly irregular. Fabulous title. Uh, is it true or almost true that English is the most or one of the most irregular languages on the planet, you think? Well, it's not the most difficult language for people to learn, of course. Millions of people do it to the very highest level of, of competency. English is not impossible to learn. It does have a very unusual spelling system, which also doesn't make it that unusual. You know, there are languages with much more difficult spelling or writing systems, but English is tricky because it uses the Latin alphabet like a number of other languages, all of which have much more consistent spelling and much easier to predict pronunciation yeah, from spelling. Spanish, right? Yeah, Spanish, German, Hungarian, everything that uses the Latin alphabet has pretty predictable spelling. You, you can spend a couple of days learning the rules or just a, just a half hour in some cases, but even you know, French is not that clear with its spelling. The French has a lot of exceptions and things you have to learn, but you can learn them. You could put them all on a couple pages, sit down with it, learn the rules, and then pick up French and pretty competently read it out. And But you just cannot do that with English. And that's yeah. what makes it really yeah. strange. It yeah. really yeah. stands apart in the family of languages that use the, the Latin alphabet. And I'm sure we'll discover in our time together today exactly why in its long history um, English has become so quirky and irregular. So you deal with English oddities of all kinds, uh, grammar, syntax, vocabulary, uh, but since we deal in this podcast with the spoken word aspect of this crazy language, let's, let's concentrate if we can on oddities of that kind, not that the other things aren't fascinating too. Uh, I loved, for example, the twisted story of why Colonel, as in <laughs> Colonel Mustard <laughs> in the conservatory with a knife or whatever that is, is pronounced the way it is, Colonel, for a, a C-O-L-O-N-E-L, -E and yet we get Colonel out of that? How did that happen? It happened through a number of steps. We originally borrowed it from French, who had borrowed it from Italian, where it's Colonello, and where most of our, our most of our military terms come originally from Italian, and the French turned it into coronel, with a something that happens in a lot of cases with language borrowing is the R turns to L or the L turns to R, and we have this in words like you know pilgrim, which comes from peregrino or marble becomes marble or you know there are there are lots of lr switches it's a very common thing to happen in the transfer from one language to another uh, milagro miracle you know the l to the r so french made it coronel and then we borrowed it from the french as coronel then shortened it to colonel 
uh, over time. That's another common thing that happens. Syllables get shortened, parts get eliminated. And we, we were saying it as kernel. At some point, people started going back to those old original Italian military treatises, and they wanted to up the level of English by making it look more like its roots, in most cases, Latin roots. Mm-hmm. In this case, is oh, it's colonel. Let's spell it like that to show that we've read those original <laughs> <laughs> cases. And, and French did this too, except they changed their pronunciation to colonel. But we did not. We kept it as kernel, but eventually we we decided on the kernel pronunciation with the colonel spelling. And now it's it's so established and learned that we can't we can't change it now. (laughs) It's a fascinating story. And our so much history is is sort of fossilized in our pronunciation and spellings. The story of tough. Uh, the subtitle of your book, Why Tough Through and Doe Don't Rhyme. Those are from old, old English. They're not borrowed. They're not transferred from another language. And we had different spellings in old English for those words, but we had a sound in old English that we don't have anymore. And that's where that G-H comes from. We have a, we had this Velar fricative, uh, the sound in like, ugh, ugh, yuck. Yeah. We used to have that in English. Um, Maybe we still have it in Scottish. It is like Lach, you have Lach, Lach, Nicht, Lach, you know? Lach uh, Yeah. That's where the, you know, you can see the old fossil remnants of the language in the pronunciation. Yeah. Uh, while for most of the language, the old fossil remnant is only in the spelling. And that's yes. what it is when you see that GH. Yeah. That's a fossil of our distant ancestors way of saying it. So if I remember um, correctly from your book, you, t- you said that Christian missionaries that came across to Britannium, they tried to, to render the, uh, the, the Celtic sounds into, into their Latin alphabet, couldn't do it, and so hit upon GH. Am I remembering that right? Yeah, Latin alphabet, Latin doesn't have that sound. And so they're trying to write this weird language down so they can you know, spread the gospel and Mm -hmm. they need to, the way to do it. And um, there were different approaches were tried, but eventually GH became the most common way to, to represent that. And it hung on for a long time because the sound hung on. We, we were saying that sound well into the period where the printing press came along, but then it was disappearing, disappearing, at the same time, we're printing more and more books, printing more and more text, and it's getting put down. And at some point, it's just spread so far that this is the way you spell it, mm-hmm. despite the way you don't say it that way anymore. It became solidified and, yes, fossilized. Yeah, fascinating story. And the letter G, what happened in our history to explain why we say gentle? Do not go gentle into that good night. Why <laughs> J and G? On the letter G. Uh, well, that one we can blame on the the Scandinavian influence. And I should, the, the one of the the themes of the book is who do we blame? So yes, here's the problem: yeah. who do we blame for it? And uh, in that case, we can blame it on the the Vikings who who came in, you know, early on. This is we're still in the 800s, 900s, and their language was very similar to Old English. It's another old Germanic language, but they had a hard G sound. We had this, generally have the hard G 
before the back vowels and they had a hard G before high vowels, like give. That word is weird for Old English, but it's not for Scandinavian or right. Old Norse as it was mm, then. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of those words where we have a hard G, but it's before a front vowel, like give and get, we borrowed that from them and it spread uh, early on. So giving us confusion when we see the word, we know it's a front vowel. We mm -hmm. still can't tell exactly how, which is yeah. which gives us the whole gif jif problem. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to egg you on to tell the story <laughs> of egging someone on. I love that that story. Tell us, tell us the story of how we got to egg someone. It's, we're not throwing eggs at them, are we? We said edge. They said egg for the same word. So really egging someone on is edging them on, like, you know, sort of at the point of a sword, getting them to do the, the edge of the sword. Yeah. So we started, we, we got the egg on uh, from, from them. And at, the, at that time, when the Scandinavians were invading and doing their thing, we, we were, we were not saying egg for the, for the, um, for the thing you eat. That was more like German, like the I or Eyer or something yeah, like that. Yeah. But the Scandinavians also gave us the hard G for that word. Uh, uh -huh. And so we ended up then with the same pronunciation for these two different concepts, different words. And yeah, we can blame that all on those hard G Scandinavians. <laughs> I love those mysteries. The main chapters that I loved in the book were how you laid the blame, as you playfully say, lay the blame. Who do we blame for all this irregularity? <laughs> and you... You have a chapter on blame the barbarians, blame the French, blame the printing press, blame the snobs, blame ourselves. So let, let's go quickly through the blaming game here and uh, <laughs> tell us who would the barbarians were and why we should blame them. They're the oldest layer of language. The barbarians were the non-Romans, the non-Roman world were all barbarians. They named them barbarians because that was the word for blah, blah, blah. These were the blah, blah, blah people because <laughs> they didn't speak a sensible language. The barbarians, the non-Latin speaking Roman world, were the roots of all the Germanic languages. Uh, and that's what English is at its very basic layer, a Germanic language, not German, but the thing that German also came from yes. way, way, way back then. Yeah. So the barbarians gave us things like that ugh sound. That is not a Latin sound. The barbarian languages had that. They gave us a lot of our irregular verbs. So um, when we say past tense, drink, drank, when we change the vowel in the middle to make the past tense, that's the oldest layer of the language. That's how we did it in old English. The barbarians gave us that, and we still do it. it the DNA uh, is still in our blood, right? Yeah, yeah. So those, there's a lot we can blame on them. And then, of course, blame the French is the one people probably have the most familiarity with. Everyone knows we got a lot from French. The Norman invasion. 1066 and all that. <laughs> yes. They come in and then... Because they, weren't, then speaking they weren't speaking French in 1066 so much as Norman French, which is a kind of... The North people, right? The Normans were the North man. Is that right? Amazingly, Normandy was also the Germanic Norse people invaded them as well. And that made them 
Normans, but the language didn't take. So the Normans invaded the, from the north and they were Germanic speaking people, but they started speaking French instead of the other way around. So there's almost nothing in the language there that comes from that Germanic layer, layer except I think the word have from from um, Le Havre, the main city in oh, Normandy. Oh, Le Havre. Mm. That yeah. is, you know, the, the route you see in, in, in Haven, Copenhagen, you know, that Haven, that's, that's a Germanic route. And that's, I think, one of the only <laughs> clues you see that they once, they once had their own kind of Germanic invasion. But then, then they came and invaded England, which was then this Germanic speaking Old English. Then they eventually started speaking English themselves, but not after hundreds of years in which time English took on so much vocabulary, uh, some sentence structure, some pronunciation. But in the end, it wasn't that the French came in, invaded, took over, kicked out the language of the people they were subjugating and put French on it because they never stopped speaking English. The conquerors didn't come in and eliminate English and totally take over because the people work in the fields, in the work in the wood shops, doing all the things, were doing the living their lives in English. It was only one layer of society that was using French, the rulers, the administrators, the clergy. And they used French and also it was the language of record keeping and doing these sort of official things, court cases. But meanwhile, English is going, it's thriving, it's developing as languages do. And then hundreds of years later, you know, 14th century or so, that ruling class, they've lost touch with the French speakers back home, which isn't really back home anymore. They're mm -hmm. English now. Yes. And they start using English and they then start using it for official business. And that's when we really start putting French into English because we've been doing stuff in English, but we haven't been doing court cases and we haven't been doing governing and record keeping and all these official things. Writing too much poetry or... You start trying to do that I guess you'd say high class language things in this language that doesn't have the vocabulary for it. What do you do when you're doing that? Well, you grab for the vocabulary, you know, which if you're an educated person is French. So you speak English grabbing French words to bulk it up. Um, yeah. But not yeah. because the French forced it on anyone. It was because there were English speakers grabbing for some educated words. And what did they know as educated words? French words. Aren't we wonderfully opportunistically inclined as language speakers? We'll press anything into service, won't we? Blame the printing press. I love that chapter. Take us, take us through that story. Why, why should we blame the people who brought us the printing press? Printing press comes to England in 1476, William Caxton. He's learned about it on the continent. He was working in Bruges and where the printing press is starting to get around in Europe. And he sees, oh, this is, you know, this is great. I can print things off really fast and sell them. He was a merchant and books became a big business, a good sales proposition. So he brings the printing press to England and immediately starts going into production. 
But at that time, the printing profession wasn't very developed. And it's very labor-intensive work. Setting type is very labor-intensive. Once you've set the type, it's great. You can print out as many as you like, but setting the type takes a lot of training. So he brought his crew with him from Bruges, and they weren't necessarily English speakers or English writers and readers and didn't have uh, very clear uh, expectations about spelling. Um, but nobody did at that point. There were not yeah. dictionaries. There were mm. not copy editors. Nothing the, like that even the, existed. The whole, the whole concept of a correct spelling was yet to come, right? Yeah, it was. You you get it down on paper, and you you use what you know from your own reading experience, and then whatever you want to get across, you you put it down. But there's so much variation in how things are spelled. And then you bring over some typesetters who are have their own ideas based on how things are spelled because they speak Flemish, and which is pretty close to English in a lot of ways. So some word, you see the word ghost, which in old English was you know, G-A-S-T, more like ghast. Mm-hmm. And they say geest, G-H-E-E-S-T was their word. And they start spelling ghost with a gh in the beginning which is strange for english we don't start words with gh but ghost we do because that's how those flemish typesetters Hmm. were setting it they spelled girl that way too with a gh but that one didn't get around so much but the word ghost that's in you know the holy ghost every time you see that phrase and if you're printing a lot of works with homilies and prayers and things then that word's getting around a lot And the more you see a word in type, the more that becomes to you, psychologically, the way you read it. And that's really the major effect of the printing press. Once the things are down, set in type, and they spread and spread and spread over and over and over again, people get used to seeing the word that way. We talk about holy writ as having the force of authority. Yeah. Uh, yeah, words, especially since learning to read is a it's it's difficult and a, and in early days a very prestigious kind of labor intensive process it, that no weren't, people weren't necessarily expected to do. So you're achieving this; it's something noteworthy, and you go with the things that have been passed to you, the things yeah. you've learned. Yeah, as as David Crystal reminds us, we don't have to be taught to speak. We do that fairly easily without assistance, but reading, you have to be taught that, don't you? Yeah, yeah. So silent consonants, what, uh, yeah, the GH, okay. Did the orthopists ever insist that the H be pronounced when they came along a little bit later? Since there is a GH in the spelling, did they want us to do ghost? I wonder. <laughs> I don't know. That would be a tough one. Maybe a, maybe a host. <laughs> if a you host, go back to the yeah. What other, yeah. What, what other things did they visit upon us that have remained in effect, they, these Flemish typesetters? Uh, well, not too many. That's a, that's a fun story because it's something you can trace specifically to this one word. But um, more than the original type, then it, after that, it became a profession with that you spent a long apprenticeship learning and then you picked up whatever the sort of house style of the press that you worked at was and there were different styles and there wasn't 
an authority that said, no, 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 this is the official style. Different presses turning out different texts with different spellings. And at that point, it's sort of a competition of who gets the most exposure over time to the people that are passing it on, doing the teaching, doing the learning, and it takes off it, it, with its own momentum. But there's no authority or central control, so there's no consistency. No academy anglaise, right? English academy. Yeah, it's happening naturally. <laughs> yeah. I think it's in this chapter that you talk about the diff there's so many different ways of, of spelling the E sound, like mm -hmm. peak and peace and people and dream, all with different spellings, but yet the same sound today. Is, is that something we can also visit on the printing press and the typesetters, or are yes. there different explanations for that? Some of the words that we have an E with, it's because we borrowed it from French, but much later, and we kept trying to pronounce it French, like you know, police. Why do we spell police that way? Well, well, because, but we borrowed that word much, much later. So there are various reasons, but it's the printing press that made the habit, whatever became a habit in this natural way of spreading and getting used to, that was because of its propagation through texts in mm -hmm. that particular word. Uh, and there was never a time when we sat down and said, no, no, let's spell e like this but even if there had been if we had had said you know let's do some rules let's have an academy let's have someone decide these things there was too much variation in pronunciation all over the country people were actually saying different things yes so which pronunciation do you choose which one do you institutionalize it took a while to even decide what the prestige dialect was and at that point it was too late to say, okay, everybody, we're spelling it like this dialect. <laughs> right, right, right. The snobs, you have a chapter, blame it on the snobs. I guess this includes the orthoopists and, and, the, and the pedants, right? Yeah, this is a, a stage in the language where now English is back, we're using it for everything, but we're still a little insecure about it. English, you know, English can do everything and we can claim Chaucer and we've got, we've got the vocabulary we need, but but it's not Latin. I mean, Latin is a real language, right? You can do philosophy in Latin. Mm -hmm. English is just, uh, is it up to the task? I don't yeah. know. Well, we want it to be up to the task. Uh -huh. So let's look to Latin. Let's, you know, get our English Latinified. <laughs> and at that point, you start spelling things more Latin-y. Words that mm. we borrowed from French or Latin long ago, and we've been spelling more close to how they sound, get new letters and new spellings by borrowing from Latin. So we have indite, you know, we used to spell as E-N-D-I-T-E, something like that, or a variation on that. How does that C get into indite? Well, Latin, there's a C there in the Latin word. So we stick the C in, we don't, but we keep saying it the way we say it. And now we have to learn all these odd spellings that are based on where the root comes from and the latin root is spelled <laughs> complicated story and then ourselves blame ourselves well that's the biggest one you know i it would be nice to say all oh, this mess it's caused by all these other groups or all these other things but really irregularity in language comes from the human language habit 
and the things that humans do with language and the things we do with language are change the meanings over time or drop endings, drop prefixes, change pronunciations. These are all things that happen in all languages, not just in English, but a lot of the weirdness of English. We can show specifically what type of human habit leads to that, that weirdness. So things like why do terrible, we have the word terrible and terrific. They both come from the word terror, but they mean completely opposite mm. things. <laughs> and that's something that happens a lot in languages. We take a word for fear and we turn it into a word for great, awesome. Yeah. Awesome is another one. Awesome and, is and of know, course quaking the, with fear. And of course, we Brits still say, oh, he's terribly nice. <laughs> yeah. Or, <laughs> he's terribly terrific. Something. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's how we buck up the emotion of the language. We make it intensify it and we make it more exciting by taking these strong emotions like fear and making them more positive. Yeah. You had a wonderful way in the book of contrasting the generally conservative instincts of writing and the business of writing with the anarchy of speech, of oral language. And why, why do we need both of those impulses, the conservative and, the, and the, the, the Apollonian and the Dionysian, if you like? Why do we need both of those impulses? Well, well language is really must be an infinitely creative tool because we have to be able to talk about everything, things that we can only imagine that don't exist, things that have never happened but might happen. We need to be able to talk about things as the world changes. We need to be able to talk about the change, even though we've never had to talk about the computer before, and now we do, and we need a way to do that. And, and we can because language is an infinitely creative tool. We have some units, we have some parts to build with, and then we have ways of building with those parts. But it also needs to be passed from one generation to the next. So I can be uh, you know, as infinitely creative as I personally want to be, but if nobody understands me, that's not going to get me very far or do what language needs to do. So it needs to be able to be communicated, which means we need to have a shared understanding of some kind. And that has to be somewhat conservative, but the bigger the group of sharing, the more conservative it has to be. So you can have you and your family might have your own little ways of your own special vocabulary, little ways of talking. And if your little community agrees on those things, great. But if you need a bigger community, your town, your whole country, then you need more conservative conventions that don't change too rapidly so that no one gets left behind from that convention. You need both those things, and but you can also have levels of conventionality and levels of creativity. So it's both those things and also both those things at many different levels. It's tempting to suggest spelling reform, of course, to make spelling match the pronunciation more closely. A uh, good idea? Terrible idea. What? I think it's a hopeless idea. I, hopeless I more do, than anything, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have respect for the people over the centuries that have really, they have they sat down to try to figure it out and solve this problem. But it's 
too late. It's, it's not going to happen. The only time it's really possible to do a top-down language reform like that is when you have a generally illiterate population. Once you have high degree of literacy, you can't get in there to change those things. Even if you're, you know, the, these countries that do have, you know, the academy or the, the decision maker for language things, they only ever make the tiniest changes from above. And it takes a very long time for them to take effect. Once you have full literacy, uh, it's very hard to do. And we don't want to not have full literacy to be able yeah. to go back and do yeah. that. I had we a very playful podcast though, a year or two back in which I had the thought experiment that everybody should be taught to uh, write in the international phonetic alphabet, therefore guaranteeing that whatever dialect they spoke in, uh, whatever word they spoke, it would reflect their pronunciation, and there could be no concept of a spelling mistake. But of course, it was, it was only a playful idea, and, mm-hmm. uh, and it would be a hopeless proposition, I think. Well, no, I think that's a great idea. It's not saying we need a new spelling of English. It's saying we should also learn this supplementary system so that when we're talking about sound, we can talk more specifically. I would love that. It's so hard for me to write about language for a popular audience because I can't use the international phonetic alphabet. If I want to say, you know, I have to say a ah, as in cat, I, yeah. I, I, you know, I have, and, and that takes up a lot of words. It takes and, up a lot and of it, space. And it might, it might or might not be the way your listener pronounces the word. Yeah, exactly. Like I have to say, okay, in my Midwestern American dialect, <laughs> I'm, so, I'm talking about that at in cat. I'm not talking yeah. about, you know, the Australian's version of that. So, right, right. and that takes that, that, that makes it so much harder to just explain things. So I would love it if, you know, one of the things that's sort of like, we have to learn the periodic table in school. Like we should also have to learn the IPA in school. Yeah, and some we, people won't really learn it or won't remember it, but at least it'll be. <laughs> it's another there. tool, right? We, we learn yes. how to notate music and we, some people are even clever enough to, to notate choreography. So, I mean, there are these other forms of notating our reality. So yeah, let's do the IPA as well as our good old Latin alphabet, maybe. But yeah. then, of course, we would lose, wouldn't we, Erica, the the fossil record if we, if we, you know, we wouldn't be able to unpick some of these odd spellings and, and realize what that tells us about our history. It would make the connections a lot less obvious, some of the historical connections. But that's why it's only a supplementary system. We We still have our writing system, but then we also have our pronunciation talk system. <laughs> We're actually talking about the sounds of language. We have this other system we can use for that. It would be nice if, if more people knew that system. Been delightful to talk to you, Erica. Thank you so much. And, and good luck with the sales of the book. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was great. And thanks to you for joining me, Paul Meyer, and my guest, Erica Okrant. To learn more about her, please see the webpage on paulmeyer.com devoted to this podcast. Don't forget to follow Paul My Dialect Services on Facebook and me on Twitter at Dialect Paul. My guest next month is Willem Holman, a linguist at the University of Lancaster in England. He's been stirring up some exciting controversy by advocating that schools be more tolerant of non-standard English grammar in essays and exams and so forth. Next time on in our manner of speaking.